Hello, Joe. I have a question. I have a question for you. I'm going to start with the questions. Today. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you right. think that theme would be better done by a kazoo? <laughs> well, maybe accompanied by a kazoo. <laughs> and that's that slide whistle thing. Woo! Called. That would be great. Just at the end. Woo! I don't even know what that. Yeah. You know that slide whistle sound? Yeah. I, I yeah. Know that, yeah. So accompanied by a kazoo in the very end, just sort of glissando. <laughs> Something like that. I got a feeling your question was going to be better than my question. No, no. You ask your question. I always ask the questions. So. No, that was my question. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, my question is we've established that you were, that you grew up in PEI. I grew up in Prince Edward Island. Yes. Yeah. So my question is, what's your favorite place on the island? My favorite place on the island. It can be Gee. from your past. It can be from currently. I don't care. Because I, I hadn't, I've been, but I was a little boy. I was probably six. So I, I would just have to say the beach because that's all I really remember because I love the beach. But It's impossible to narrow it down, but I'll give you a handful of places. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because um, it keeps, it changes too because, I mean, obviously I, I love Summerside having grown up there. I love uh, Cavendish, even though it's, you know, kind of crazy commercial at the moment. Cabot Park was a, uh, a favorite haunt uh, as a kid. Uh, my sister camps in in twin shores now which is fabulous and over the summer i went to uh the uh the bison park outside of montague which is wait wait great. wait wait what bison yeah there used to be bison, bison on the island there there are there's a there are. herd of them wow yeah and don't make the mistake of calling them buffalo because people and will get upset are they yeah. are they come from a ways as well or are they uh are they islanders they are well. I think some of them, you know, by now are native to the island. But ah, yes, but a bunch of them. The original herd was transported here from. I think it was from Alberta, actually. Oh wow! Yeah. So if you ever pop down, a lot of people spend way too much time between Summerside and Charlottetown, and they don't get out to the other ends. And you got to make it a point to do that. Otherwise, you won't see the the bison. That's always the case. No matter where you go, you, you don't just go to the capital. You got to go see. The hinterlands. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And what about our guest? Our guest, Carrie Bates. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Yeah. So what about me? I'm yeah. What about you? What's your favorite part of Prince Edward Island? I have only really been to Prince Edward Island once on a flying trip out east many, many years ago, but uh, I was of driving age, so I guess I was older than you, Mark. And okay. I remember... <laughs> Seeing the tall ships in the harbor, and I remember eating some really awesome crepes, and I remember driving a lickety split around the island to get to the bridge, which was brand new at the time. Ooh, fancy. But uh, it, it was too short a visit. Yeah, got to spend the entire summer on the island i wish well, we, i could spend the entire summer. yeah we spent some time there but i like i said i was six and so i was just a little guy so you have not experienced the bridge no uh, no of course not no that's why i went Ooh, that's fancy <laughs> <laughs> i do remember the boat ride i remember there was a boat ride to get there or ship yeah <laughs> yeah i took the ferry, yeah, the ferry. at one end of yeah. pei and i drove back the bridge on the other at the other end so carrie has the distinction of being the first potter on the show yes that is awesome. We have not had physical art like that 
yet. That's right. I'm not referring to like a Harry Potter or, or yeah. Have we not? I don't think so. Do we have a dancer? We had Melissa talking about Melissa. Dance, she talked she, about yeah. dance, but she didn't say she was a dancer. Maybe she is, <laughs> and she just didn't reveal that. Yeah, but that's. I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. Carrie, I think at this point we need you to tell us uh, all about yourself. Uh, hi, I'm Karina Bates. I'm the owner of Horace Eye Pottery. I have been a potter for close to 20 years now. I am not professionally trained in an art school. My education was in business administration, and I spent some time doing that before I found the greater love of, of making things but I am also a musician and I have been, have dabbled my hand at writing in the past and I am a knitter and a gardener and all of those things. So a very creative person. Absolutely. Yeah. I've known Carrie for a long time and I think I sort of knew you first uh, as a, as a writer. Yes. Really. That would have been the, uh, the monthly reading nights that we used to all get together at. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And when when did you take up pottery? I actually tried pottery in high school. We had a really, really amazing art teacher named Mrs. Warren. And she was a graduate of, of what is now OCAD. And she t gave us uh, a sampling of many things, including stained glass and pottery and uh, mask making and printing and all kinds of things. And so I tried my hands at, at pottery then, didn't touch it again for many years and a friend of mine dragged me down to her studio in 2004 and that was the end of that got hooked now can you tell me what kind of pottery you do because i i know that there's different approaches sure so i mostly work on the wheel i am not really a hand builder um although i will do some small hand built things i tend to right. do also what's called functional work so i don't tend to make things that are put on the wall i do not tend to make things that do not have a purpose I think maybe because that's kind of me. I don't like things that don't have purpose in my house. So I don't make things that don't have purpose. Hmm. And it's a nice feeling to have somebody, you know, hold a cup that you've made and say that they like having their coffee in it or, you know, having their dinner off of a plate or things like that. So that's, that's a nice feeling. I like, I like that. Yeah. And it's a wonderful art that's functional. I, I mean, there is something really fabulous about art that you can use. Yeah. Well, and I can attest to that because we have several of uh, Carrie's pieces here in the house. I use them at least one, sometimes two, sometimes three, every single day. Ooh. She made me a coffee mug, which is fabulous, and a honey jar. I've now switched completely to putting honey in my coffee instead of sugar because I use Carrie's honey jar. And I didn't even know it, it should have come with instructions. I had to figure out how to use it because <laughs> it came Noted. with this kind of, yeah, this wooden stick thing Yes. that I can, I just surmised that you dip in the honey and you kind of twirl it around and then hold it over your coffee mug. And then the honey drips into the mug. And I remember my daughter, Erin, <laughs> watching me do this, trying to make sense of it. And she's like, hmm. That's interesting. And and that's how I do it. Yeah. And then we've got bowls that she's made. And uh, I highly recommend Carrie's stuff because it's all for sale too, isn't it? It is. I don't uh, tend to hold very much back. It has to be pretty special for me to want to keep something of my own these days. So I tend to sell. I tend to try and sell an awful lot of it if I can. Yeah. And you sell it out of uh, shops and you sell it out of your house and... How does it get? Because uh, Mark and I are trying to figure out how to sell books. Can you give us any tips? Um, I, do, that? do you ship? I, the, do you ship things or? I do actually. I I do. Sh I have okay. learned how okay, to ship, 
ship pots so that they usually uh, do not arrive smashed at the other end. You have to do some pretty good driving over it with a vehicle in order to actually do in the packaging that I tend to do for my customers. But I have done numerous different types of sales and then I'm sure you fellows have done some similar stuff. So I have uh, been uh, in art sales and in specifically pottery sales affiliated with the guild that I am part of. I have done studio tours and uh, we, we can circle around back to this later, but I'm also part of a reenactment group and, and I tend to sell an awful lot of reproduction pottery to reenactors. So I do sales there as well. Then on top of that, what I ended up finding fairly early on was my business Facebook page has as say what you want about Facebook, but I have to say that it was probably one of the best ways to get uh, my name out there. It was one of the best ways to uh, when friends shared the links and and sent things on on their own feeds it was a really great way to get people who would look at stuff because i tend to post a lot of photographs about things in process and it is not unusual for me to sell something before it even comes out of the kiln because somebody has really either enjoyed the story of the process that i was doing or liked what they were seeing as it was being formed and all that kind of stuff so that has been actually quite successful for me that's wonderful. That's yeah, because I, I post stuff on Facebook, but it's usually just stupid cat gifs and stuff like that, <laughs> which has very little to do with my writing. That's my personal page. But it's funny. But, it's always, uh, always yeah, I, I, I enjoy making people happy. So that's why I do it that way. But yeah, that's wonderful that you could actually. But it's it's good storytelling, too, right? Yeah. If and you're posting pictures about what you're doing and how it's going. And I can see people getting really involved with with that. Yeah. as they watch the process. It's not as static as a web page. And I do have a web page, but I apologize for it every time I, I, I say I have one because I had great goals for it and ideas for it. And it it kind of languishes in mostly obscurity. And really the the Facebook page is the, the place where I'm able to post photographs and talk about the things that I'm doing and show the successes. And sometimes I show the failures too, the things that don't work. Well, sometimes it takes finding the right social media too. Like I, I found that I have a fraction of the audience I had on Twitter, but on Mastodon, I find I can really connect with people very well. Yeah, I've definitely, like I will post something about a book and I'll notice a few sales afterwards. So I don't cool. see that on Twitter typically. So yeah, it's, so it's interesting just what, what social media makes sense. And I, mm-hmm. I Facebook makes sense to me that, that that would work for, sorry, always have the social media thinking cap on <laughs> hopefully i can help with my students somehow i don't know <laughs> these days it is necessary i want to get back to yeah. that moment when you went to your friend's studio and and became entranced with with pottery what was it about it like what was the sudden spark was there i think maybe it was she gave me enough time to play as an adult it was one thing being a you know, a high school age student doing stuff in high school because these were the things that you learned, right? And this is the stuff that your teacher was getting you to do. And while I enjoyed art and I enjoyed the classes that I had with our teacher, I don't know that, you know, I think like a typical teenager, I didn't appreciate it as much as I would now as an adult kind of thing. So, you know, and I appreciated what I learned there and I still have actually quite a number of things that I made in that art class including a stained glass piece 
that is my maker's mark. So I have, you know, I have really great memories of that, but my friend gave me sort of unlimited time and, and some instruction um, and some unlimited time to, to work in her studio and, and get a feeling for it and put me in touch with the local guild. And I met my teacher who uh, has been my mentor for the last 20 years. And she really helped push me towards wanting to learn all the things. And I think like many other arts, pottery is very addictive in that First of all, it's a very calming thing. You cannot be thinking about the kid you forgot to pick up from school. You cannot be thinking about the what groceries did I forget to grab for tonight or did I remember to you know take my pill in the morning or did I remember to do this thing or that thing? Because if you start thinking about all that other stuff, frankly, you make crap. Your hmm. piece will not will not. Yeah, work the heck out. with the kid. Okay. <laughs> The piece will not work out right, okay? Um, especially on the wheel. Hand building is a is really a completely different thing. If you remember back to the days where you might have played with with plaster scene or play doh or something like that, hand building is can still be very meditative, but it's it's it is a different thing. When you are working on the wheel, you are working with a machine, and you are working with centrifugal force and physics. And as I say to my students an awful lot now, there really aren't any rules in pottery, just physics. And physics will call you out every single time if your brain is not in the game. And so it makes you be in the moment and it makes you focus on what's happening in the now. And if you do not focus on what's happening in the now, your clay is stuck to the wall because physics and centrifugal force. But it is this wonderful process of okay i made this thing now i want to make this thing bigger now i want to make this thing better i want to make this thing lighter i want to make this thing look like this thing i saw in a book somewhere i want to have you know well now i'm not just satisfied with making a mug i want to make a bowl i want to make a plate i want to make a teapot i want to make a honey dipper i want to make all of these different things and Mm -hmm. how big can i make them and and how much clay can i use and you know what what challenge it's like pottery megalomania well and it is it's 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 in and i think that you know anybody who has painted and wanted to get something maybe more realistic or they wanted to try and master the brushwork better you know somebody who's a singer and they want to to be able to expand their range they want to be able to to write this perfect song i think it's very much similar goals wow and you mentioned uh, your maker's mark and we'll uh, we'll get to that cuz i know that's what we're we're going to talk about but I, i'd like to hear more if i can about what is involved in in doing the pottery because you set up a studio at your home and is that like a difficult expensive elaborate process um it's not cheap um it's it's not a hobby it's it's like many other hobbies it's not a hobby for someone who hasn't got some some money to outlay first so there are unfortunate stories of people during the pandemic who uh decided that they wanted to learn how to play with clay and they went out and i guess they could afford it ran out and bought themselves brand new wheels and brand new kilns and set themselves up in their living rooms which is a bit weird but (laughs) if you have if you have an interest in clay and you have either a studio a public studio or a guild nearby 
that is one of the best ways to get involved with it in a way that doesn't cost you anything more than the price of the class. And then you can get through some of the humps of the learning and and the, the challenges of the learning. I had been doing pottery, I guess, again, probably close to five or six years when my friend who had got me back into it actually chanced upon a for sale notice from a woman who had been part of the the local potter's guild and she due to her health was getting out of doing uh wheel throwing and so she was selling her whole studio pretty well with the exception of some items for a song and uh, because she had to move and she wanted the stuff out of there. And so I ended up with a secondhand wheel and a secondhand kiln and a bunch of ingredients and, uh, you know, a, a bunch of stuff that has served me quite well. So wow! if you're just going to do hand building, um, we tend to find that it's, it's very easy to do that because all you really need is clay and a few tools and someplace flat and clean to work. A wheel thrower needs the wheel and tools and space and water and a place to dispose of said things that does not affect your drainage. And then if you're doing what you're doing, which is producing lots of stuff, you then presumably need some space as well (laughs) to store things and (laughs) let them properly cure and so on. Oh yeah. And, and that was interesting during the pandemic because my kiln was not set up yet. And so I was still using the guild kiln. And the guild was in lockdown, so I couldn't take my pieces to be fired. So by the time the lockdown was done, I had a dining room table covered in ware. I had an extra table in the dining room that was covered in ware. Our library shelves, any library shelves that did not have any books on them had pottery on them. My husband's library shelves in his (laughs) office had pottery on. There was pretty well no place in the house that did not have pottery in it somewhere. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in the process wow. currently of moving from my tiny little studio into a slightly bigger studio. So um, hopefully that will Yay. alleviate some of the space problem. <laughs> so you have your own wheel, you have your ingredients, um, but you have to, the kiln is elsewhere. You, you have to fire the stuff elsewhere. Um, I currently fire at the guild because my, I'm still waiting. I have to have... I have to finish setting up the place that it's going to go and I have to have an electrician and professionally install it for me. And and anybody who's new to pottery, you know, if they're really interested in wheel throwing and stuff and they've been doing it for a while, sure. You know, if you can find yourself a secondhand wheel somewhere, there are lots of very good wheels on the market. They are made really, really well and they often do not degrade unless somebody's, you know, dropped them off the back of a pickup truck or something. But Uh, A kiln is a whole other thing and it's a whole other level of science because you can Mm -hmm. really screw stuff up really badly by misfiring your kiln and your kiln is, while it is a glorified oven, it is a glorified oven that goes up to well over 2100 degrees and if you are not careful, yes, it could burn your place down. And so these are all safety issues that you want to be be very cognizant yeah. of. Chemistry kicks in as a science when you start talking about the kiln, right? Oh, yeah. it really does. It really does. Yeah, yeah. You probably don't want to try doing your pizza in there. <laughs> probably it's bad for the pottery, Joe. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's not great for the kiln. It's not great for the kiln. But uh, it, you could certainly <laughs> do your pizza in there if you really wanted to. It is an option. but yeah i don't encourage like any of my students i never encourage them to get a kiln anywhere close to to at the beginning because it's a huge huge outlay they're generally these days they are no less than five grand 
to buy new. And mm. uh, because a lot of them now have computers on them, they suffer the same issues that a lot of the computerized vehicles do now. You've got a significant weight because a lot of the components are backordered. And, and how much is a wheel? Uh, usually a couple of grand. Again, new. You can find used items right. yeah. um, on Kijiji or through local guilds or whatever, but you know that's by luck of the draw. But that's not bad compared to some other artisans like woodworkers and steelsmiths and stuff like, or uh, you know, a wood turning machine, goldsmiths and stuff is, like, yeah, yeah, like those kinds of things are very expensive. So yes. yeah, it's 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 actually fairly low point of entry. Yeah, as I, as I have often joked with um, folks at my guild, I could have chosen a lighter hobby. <laughs> well, and by the way, I got to c- congratulate you on saying guild kiln so well, because that's really a tongue twister. Try to say that three times fast, Joe. <laughs> guild kiln. Guild kiln. You're yeah, right. Is, right? Like- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> guild kiln. Guild kiln. That's a new feature we're going to have to add to the podcast. <laughs> tongue twisters. Tongue twisters. Yeah. Okay, so let's get back to, you mentioned your maker's mark, and that yes. goes, I'm assuming that goes on the bottom of, of every piece you do, or does it go someplace else? It usually like goes on the bottom of every or, piece, yeah, the bottom or the yeah. reverse, yeah. And yeah. that's the piece of art that you want to talk about, the thing that inspired you. What, what is a maker's mark? And okay, so um, anybody who signs their pieces, whether it is a painting or a uh, woodcrafted object or a metalwork object or a piece of pottery uh, or leatherwork for that matter, or even some uh, object that is a fine piece of clothing that has, you know, the brand name on it somewhere. Uh, those are all, you know, those are all uh, methods of identification, right? So they're, they're uh, the mark of the maker. And certainly when you talk about antiques, you will quite often find that there are uh, what they will call maker's marks um, that either depict the factory or the artisan that made, you know, uh, said piece. And there are actual uh, registries, especially of glasswork, especially of of European and Canadiana glasswork, that uh, will tell you who the maker was based on what you can find on the bottom of a piece and when they were in production and where they were in production. I mean, that's, that's effectively what a maker's mark is. It can be anything from, you know, Joe Mahoney signed this, or yeah. it can be a set of initials, or in my case, it is a pictorial representation, and it is a pictorial representation of the Horusai, which is the name of my business. The Horusai, yeah. And for people that are listening, just to be clear, but that, that is H O R U S space E Y E, Horusai. Correct. So tell us about that. So the Horusai is a. Um, In Egyptian mythology, there was the god Horus, who was the son of Isis and Osiris. And he was many things. And in the Egyptian religion, their um, depiction of Horus uh, went so far as to start to personify not only the god, the raven, he was depicted as a raven, um, and there's actually an excellent description um, that I read a little while ago of, of Horus, the wings being the firmament, the, the sky, uh, his right eye and his left eye being the sun and the moon, and uh, his speckled belly, because he's a falcon, his speckled belly are the stars in the heavens. Not only was he depicted as a falcon, but 
his wings became personified themselves, his eyes became personified. So in Egyptian art, you will find that the eye is actually giving a tribute of something to Osiris or doing whatever. The short story of the the, the history of, of um, Horus is that uh, Osiris's brother Set kills Osiris and uh, Horus avenges him. And in saving his father Osiris, he gives his father one of his eyes to eat in order to heal his father. And so uh, there are lots of different representations of 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 Horus uh, as a healer, as a protector, as a warrior, all of these different kind of things. And I came to know the eye because I was uh, maybe a typically frightened young child who had nightmares and whatnot. And uh, my mother would draw Horace Eye on my window every night as a, uh, I guess, a way to calm me down when I was a kid. It was just a thing she did. It was, you know, part oh, of our wow. ritual and it was the protector for my sleep. So, and so that was wow. my first introduction to, to what that was. And my mother was a big, big art. Um, Egyptology nut and she taught classes on Egyptology as part of some of the, the extra things that she did on top of being an antique dealer and uh, she passed that on to me. Can you I, I don't know if you can explain the difference between the eye of Horus and the eye of Ra because I know one face is left and one face is right but I don't remember what they were and what the yes. differences are. And, and And you have to think of it to if you were looking it's, in a mirror it's stage so, left right it's stage yeah, left it yeah is because it's it is the left yeah. eye that is horus and it but is the right eye that is raw technically they're both right. horus but oh, the, okay but the left eye is the moon which is more generally uh, associated with horus and the right eye is the sun and of course because of akhenaten that ended up be becoming that's, that's raw. raw yeah okay so in uh Stargate, it's it's the eye of Ra that everyone sees, right? Not not yeah. the eye of Horus. Yeah, and interestingly yeah. enough, when I did my stained glass when I was in high school, the the right side of the stained glass is actually Ra, not Horus. Yeah, probably because I wasn't thinking through that clearly. <laughs> now, are you worried at all that future archaeologists are going to be very confused um... <laughs> because of your maker's mark? <laughs> no, no, I'm joking, um... obviously. <laughs> I, I've hung around with enough archaeologists, actually, that there are already enough jokes and funny internal stories about, you know, finding the 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 ring of the toilet and wondering what kind of a worshiping um, thing this was. And I'm, there there are some there are some very um, um, amusing archaeology stories based on stuff that is extant now right so i think yeah, actually yeah. i think what might be more amusing is the number of of um artisans that i know that do reproduction work for um reenactors and for museums as a matter of fact and uh archaeologists in the future finding these and going okay so this is exactly the same as the thing from 1200 but there's 800 years difference here if we do a uh, an actual hmm. analysis of the 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 with a microscope yeah they could at least you know it's like yeah yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they can look at where the clay is from, and hopefully that will help them figure it out. But yeah, <laughs> because of my interest in archaeology, I also put the date on the bottom of my pieces. Oh, I love that. That's fabulous. So if you look at any of the pieces you have, Joe, yeah, the, the yeah. date that they were made. Do you put the correct date? Yes, I do. 
probably going to have to pick mine up and look at them. But uh, I try not to handle them any more than necessary because I don't want to accidentally break them. Ah, you see that so. that's that goes back to a, a an axiom one of my teachers told me at one point was you don't fall in love with anything that, until it comes out of the kiln the final time, and then it's only rented. Right. Yeah. It, these things are yeah. meant to be it's used, my, right? Meant to be used. Yeah. Well, my daughter made me a uh, a mug. Which I'll show you guys. Hang on. <laughs> He's going off camera right now, listener. It's, uh, it has a Declee on it, you know, which is a character yeah, your from book. one of my books. Yeah. And yeah, and I, I, you know, drank from this a few times, and then something happened to it. I don't, I don't know what, but you can oh, see that it's it, um, yep. kind of broken there. Yeah, so I can't use it to. Fortunately, I have your mug to drink out of, and this has become a, a strictly decorative object, but. Yeah, they, they can be fragile. They can be. Yep. I want to get back to something that you were mentioning earlier that I can completely relate to. You were talking about the act of of doing pottery, that you have to be completely in the moment and focusing and not thinking about the kid that you, you know, forgot about or whatever. And uh, th this is a phenomenon that I experienced at work, like doing doing live radio. Like when you're doing live radio, you're completely absorbed. You can't think about anything else. You're thinking about, you know, what's coming next, what's going on at the moment, any problems that are. And I would always emerge from doing live radio, like a live show, completely relaxed. Mm -hmm. Unless it was, you know, went horribly wrong. <laughs> but usually, <laughs> you know, completely relaxed because whatever mood that I was in before I started it, I was in a completely different mood afterwards. And uh, so I, I do imagine that that is a hugely beneficial byproduct of doing pottery. Yep. There have been some articles in uh, psychological journals in the last uh, eight years talking about the benefits of different types of art and especially things that you do with your hands. So stuff that forces you to focus on things that take you away and put you, as they say, in the moment. So being present in the moment, uh, which is very much a, a uh, psychological uh, methodology for uh, combating things like depression and anxiety and, and many other ailments that we are most prone to in this day and age, it seems. I can only imagine that that, yeah. that centrifugal force you're talking about, that's having that spinning around, it's so easy to get into that flow feeling the state of flow, yeah. That state of flow is so amazing. Like that's that's what most artists are just gunning for, right? Is you want to get into that state of flow yep. because then whatever you're creating just comes through you. It doesn't. You don't have to create it. It's coming through yeah. you. So I imagine that 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 motion is helpful. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, it is, and it's having done. You know, having done writing sessions, having done, having been a performer, um, those kind of things, there is a very similar feeling to, you know, having a really great night on stage or I'm having a really productive day writing and I'm getting all of these ideas down to, you know, I'm, I'm in the zone and every pot I'm making is really good. The big deal is the enjoying of the process. It's not just the, you know, the applause at the end of the song or the fact that I've finished a book and I can, you know, sell it. It's the enjoyment of the process of the getting there. And that is, that is all it. And is pottery something that you can do throughout your entire life? Is it, or does it require 
a certain strength or concentration? Does it have like an end date to it or? I'm going to say no with a caveat. I'd say a good portion of older potters and by older, I'm talking in their 80s, often start to, to gravitate away from the wheel because not necessarily because of the weight of the clay. It has more to do with the fact that fingers, uh, especially being prone to things, uh, nasty things like arthritis, cold water, um, even if you've made your water hot, eventually it will cool down. Um, cold water and clay are not nice to the, the joints in your fingers uh, if you have arthritis. And so I tend to find that a lot of older potters start to steer away from wheel throwing because they don't want to have to deal with all of the water. However, that being said, while I was administrator of our guild for a number of years, we one of our teachers was 91, I think. Wow. Um, she had, or in her late 80s, early 90s, anyway, and she had bad arthritis. Her Her fingers were actually, a couple of them were quite bent and crooked up in, in what seemed like an almost useless way. And yet she was the hand-building teacher for two years. And uh, she was a great advertisement to um, a number of people who had come in and said, oh, I can't do pottery. I'm too old. I'm too frail. I'm too whatever. And she'd just be like, come over here. Let me have a talk. (laughs) You know, and and she beckoned with her crooked finger. (laughs) Exactly. And, And she made these wonderful things and not tiny things either. She made these you know, great big uh, pitchers and teapots and large bowls and things like that. And she would just do it via hand building. So I'm not going to say that there is an end date because I think that anybody who's got that passion to create whatever physical barriers they might be starting to face, they're probably going to try and find a way around them. I mean, I've, I've certainly, I've seen creative people who have lost limbs, who learn how to paint with their teeth or their feet, or, you know, um, people who have learned to play instruments and they, you know, are minus a hand. And, you know, so, I mean, there are all different kinds of, of physical barriers to many different arts, but I think if somebody has the passion for it, I don't think age is a barrier. Yeah. That's great. Can I ask you about the guild? How many people are in your guild? And maybe explain to us what a guild is, because I know what it is, but I, I don't know that everybody knows what a guild is. Yeah. So in the, in, in the medieval era, a guild was generally a, a grouping of people of like mind who did similar things. So it might have been a guild of, of weavers. It might have been a guild of potters. It might have been a guild of, I don't know, name your name your art. And back then it was to yeah, be able it? to control the prices of things and, and, and yeah. handle that. A modern day guild. It was is, like a combination union corporation, right? Like yeah, it really the was. guilds were sort of like, we control the labor and we control the method of making these things and we yeah. control this product. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Or you look at Frank Herbert and, and the guilds in Dune and you get a similar idea. Yeah, of The what Spice the med- Guild. Yeah, exactly. exactly yeah. You get a similar idea of the medieval era, right? Um, but always comes back to science fiction always science fiction is life man. it really science is fiction yeah. is life it really is um <laughs> but the modern guild now in in most of the world and i'm not going to say in all of the world because i suspect in some countries it may actually still 
there may be some that still are are more along the medieval lines. But certainly in North America, um, most guilds, whether they're woodturners guilds or weavers or spinners or what have you, they are usually, if you read their manifestos, their, their primary goal is to teach. They want to keep the art alive. So our primary, our guild's primary goal is to, is to teach, is to teach people how to work with clay. And so our guild in Peterborough, Ontario is the core of the Potter's Guild. We have been around for 30 years in 2025. Uh, we'll be celebrating our 30th anniversary and it started as a bunch of people meeting in somebody's living room and deciding that, you know, how could we arrange to have a Christmas sale? And in 2012, we had the luck to find our very own space, permanent space where we could actually teach. Prior to that, we were renting rooms and doing all that kind of thing. Especially over COVID, our membership soared from something that was closer to an 80 average per year to 140. So, wow. yeah, it's, that's, that's a lot of people, especially for the size of our space. Yes, it is a lot of people. Yeah, that's now I want to ask you about the, the significance of the word throw. And I have a reason for for asking what does throw or throwing mean in the context of pottery to throw? I suspect it literally comes from the act of throwing the clay like a ball down onto the head of the wheel before you start it to spin. You don't generally place your ball of clay tentatively down onto the wheel because you want it to stick. And so gravity is a great assistance to that. And I, I joke with my students that it is your one opportunity at anger management therapy uh, because you can just, <laughs> you can just wail on it and you can throw that clay down and get it stuck and get it centered and all of that kind of stuff. So I am not entirely sure, but I suspect that that is has a lot to do with the um, the concept of throwing. Now, having explained that, can you do me the favor of reading to us your shirt? <laughs> uh, this is this is my very well. It's 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 one of my very favorite shirts. <laughs> It is from the That's Canadian great. Clay and, Ga and Glass Gallery, which is in London, Ontario. And it says, throws like a girl. <laughs> and I love it. That's great. It is a fantastic <laughs> shirt. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I expect that uh, throwing like a girl is perfectly satisfactory. It very much <laughs> is. Gets the job done. It really does. Now, in the context of, of many fields... There's, a, there's something that I refer to as a, a niche fame. Like in, in, in writing in science fiction, there's people that, you know, that we consider famous or very well known, but people outside science fiction wouldn't necessarily know them. Does it work the same in, in pottery? Yeah, it sure does. Do you guys have like a famous? Yeah. Oh, no, it, it, it sure does. And so who would, who would those people be? Uh, okay, so probably one of the major names for the modern pottery era would be Bernard Leach. He was an Englishman who went to China and Japan to learn what they were doing in the East. And I cannot remember the name of his uh, business partner, uh, but that gentleman came back with him um, from Japan 
and uh, they started up the Leech Clay Works in England, and they changed the face of pottery for the modern era. And so anybody who studies, especially if they study at a place like OCAD or Sheridan or something like that, if they're studying pottery, that's a name they're going to know. And he had very specific ideas about what a modern British pottery studio should look like and how it should operate and what kind of things it should be making and how it should be teaching the art and all of those kind of things. So in terms of sort of the, the, the grander scale, that's definitely, that's definitely a name that, that probably any potter would know. Bernard Leach. Yeah, we got that name out there. Yeah. yeah, and he's... any relation to Cary Grant? Wasn't his real last name Leach? Oh, that's news to me. I don't <laughs> Archie. know. Archie. No idea. Yeah. Archie Leach. Yep. <laughs> wow. What about uh, Canadian potters? Oh, oh Canadian oh. potters. Uh, Wayne Cardinelli. Um, we definitely have a lot of really talented potters all across the country. It is a privilege, actually, to get to meet and see some of them and see some of their work and, and, and what they're doing and how they've, they've pushed the art along in Canada and, and across the world. Now, if somebody wants to purchase your pottery, your work, what is the best way for them to do that? They can contact me uh, via my Facebook page, which is at Horace Pottery. They can email me, info at horaceipottery.ca. They can go to our guild and uh, buy some of my work there. And that's the Kawartha Potters Guild. Uh, and that does have a website, kawarthapottersguild.com. But certainly contacting me directly is a way to uh, find pieces. And I also, I tend to do a lot of commissions. So I do a lot of, as I said, I do a lot of historical reproduction work for reenactors, as well as modern work that is really heavily medievally influenced. We'll make sure we put those links in the show notes. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I feel like uh, we need to commission Carrie to do some recreative swag, pottery yeah, swag. Yeah, I, I think that's a good idea. I like, I'm excited about this. Yeah. That could be an option, gents. <laughs> we could talk about that. Yeah. 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 And as soon as this podcast starts making huge sums of money, <laughs> we will get right on that. Because yeah, Mark Marin has done very well with his cat mugs. I'll just point that out. <laughs> I can't remember the name of the pottery he has working on those mugs, but they are gone like that. They're... They're up for like a fraction of an hour. Okay. <laughs> and then they're gone. Yeah. Carrie, anything further you'd like to tell us about pottery and, oh, uh, and your makers? How mark? long do you have? Another 47 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pottery is, an, is, is a lifelong pursuit like um, many things. And so I would only encourage those who are interested in getting their hands dirty to find someone that can teach them. Now there is a uh, your maker's mark, and then we have our recreative mark. Mark, any further comments? On, well, uh, I guess uh, so. They, they should be looking for the local guild is what they should be doing if people want to start to make their own pottery. That's the starting point. Yeah, I'd say look look for a local studio. There aren't guilds yeah. everywhere, but they're quite often are cooperative studios, right. and uh, quite often all of these places will offer teaching of some sorts. Okay, great. Yeah, that's great advice. Carrie, thank you very much. Carrie Bates, thank you for being on our podcast, Recreative. Thank you for inviting me. I am most honored to have been here. Lovely to meet you again. Nice to meet you again, Mark. <laughs> Take care. Thank you.
you've been listening to Recreative, a podcast about creativity. Talking to creative people from every walk of life about the art that inspires them. And you're probably wondering, how can I support this podcast? I am wondering, Joe, how can I support this podcast? I mean, apart from being on it. There's no advertisements in this podcast. There's no tip jars. There's nothing about like buying us a coffee or anything like that. But there is a way that you can support us. And what is that? They could buy our books. And how do they find us? Recreative.ca. Don't forget the hyphen. There's a hyphen in there. Re-creative. I took your line, sorry. Well, because I stole your line. <laughs> so yes, re-creative.ca. Jenks. Oh yeah, you're, that, I stole your line again. <laughs> As well, if you like what you've just heard, you could consider subscribing to the podcast. And leave a comment if you like it. Thanks for listening. Spread the word.